Welcome to Gross Anatomy. Are we live? We're live, Dr. Cohen. Hey, we're live. All right. We're live with Gross Anatomy, eh? Right. Gross Anatomy podcast where we explore the sights, sounds, smells of medicine and how it relates to pop culture, movies, books, TV, and the world around us. Yeah. And I am Dr. Jason Cohen. And I'm Lauren Taylor. And today I'm super duper excited to have a friend and colleague who I really love and respect and love working with, Dr. Rosalind Morell. Ah, uh, thank you, Jason. So nice of you uh, to say that. I like yeah. working with you too. You're a friend yeah. and a colleague and awesome surgeon. So didn't we weren't we a million years ago at some kind of back when it existed at some sporting event together. I, I seem to remember. I think, so. I think so. But my memory's so bad. Your memory's a lot better than mine. So, but I think we were. <laughs> we definitely were at either a Laker game or a uh-huh. Kings game a zillion years ago, it seems like, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Long time ago. Back when that thing exists, what are sporting events, right? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> uh, so Dr. Morell, thank you so much for saying for saying okay to being a guest on our show. And I'm, I'm hoping and planning on asking you some bizarre, challenging questions, but I may put you on the spot in terms of medicine, you know, med- medical, because you are a radiation oncologist, correct? Correct. So when I was in, in college, when I was in med school, I don't even think until I was in my residency, I don't even think I had any idea what a radi- radiation oncologist was. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I mean, we're kind of always in the basement, st- stuck in the basement. And so you don't get a lot of exposure to radiation oncologists at all. So I can I can remember being in med school and not seeing really anybody from the Department of Radiation Oncology pretty much all the way through. Maybe one short 20-minute lecture, and that right. was it. Mm-hmm. So, so, so with that, what the heck is a radiation oncologist? So a radiation oncologist basically uses radiation therapy to treat patients who have all types of cancer, mostly solid tumors, and we treat a few benign things as well. Um, and we use ionizing radiation, so what I kind of call high-dose or high-intensity x-rays that kill cancer. And we're usually um, part of the oncology team, so we have surgeons and medical oncologists and then radiation oncologists. And so did you, as a kid, say, hey, I want to grow up and be a radiation oncologist? How- how did you, what made you decide to become a radiation oncologist? Well, I kind of knew from age 11 that I wanted to be a doctor. And believe it or not, when I first got into medical school, I wanted to be a surgeon. But um, I believe I it. <laughs> but the one thing that I just did not like at all was I don't like being sterile. So <laughs> it was just ah. not my thing. So um, actually, I when I did internal medicine and pediatrics, that's when I got exposed to patients, you know, uh, cancer patients that were inpatient. And so I, I'm going to hold that thought. I'm going to back. I, I want to back you up. So I, I don't know if everybody understands what you mean by you didn't like being sterile. What, what do you exactly <laughs> mean by that? What you, you didn't like well, the process surgery, of, right. Yeah, what is, yeah. I found it very, um, the scrubbing in 
And the yeah. whole process of scrubbing in and doing it properly. Because as a medical student, you're so afraid of getting yelled at. And right. I think that was one of the biggest things that was, you know, very intimidating for me, believe it or not, just the scrubbing in process and being afraid of actually um, touching something after you were, you know, you had your gloves on. So it was a so little... You- that person who would like constantly have your hands roam around and you'd actually touch your nose and then you'd <laughs> that you no i was like stiff as a robot i was just so stiff i i actually when when i went through surgery my surgery rotation i was never yelled at so i, I made it through <laughs> but when I did pediatrics, I actually had a, a four-year-old girl who had a, a, a tumor on her kidney. And so, yeah, as you know, when you're in medical school, they make you do, you know, follow your patient from, you know, when they get admitted to the time they get discharged. And so followed her down to the radiation oncology department way down in the basement. As a medical student. Mm-hmm. As a medical student. And, that, and that's kind of what, what even interested you and turned you on to radiation oncology. Yeah, because I was like, well, wow, what do you guys do? What's what's going on here? And I knew a little bit about medical oncology, but I knew right. I just didn't really want to, you know, at that point, after I got a little bit of exposure, I thought it was, you know, really interesting, um, kind of cool. And, um, but I knew that medical oncology just wasn't for me because, you know, with a lot of the chemotherapies, the patients are quite sick. But yeah. yet with radiation, even though we cause, we can cause some side effects, I found that the patients weren't, you know, always nauseated and always vomiting and they felt for the most part pretty good. So yeah. that's why I decided to, you know, do radiation oncology. I kind of knew that I wanted to work strictly with cancer patients and so that's how I picked it. Where did you grow up? I grew up on the East Coast. So I'm a New Where? Yorker. New York. Oh, I, I'm a New Yorker. I don't have did that. I know that? Did we, <laughs> did we do you know where I'm from? No. <laughs> How do you not know where I'm from? I would have to guess that you're from New York. Yes, exactly. Where did you grow up? White Plains. You go first. White Plains. White Plains. Yeah. I grew up in the White Plains. So where did you go to med school? Well, that's so I moved to Arizona, actually. Uh, And where did you go to college? Same place, Arizona. So I lived in Arizona for a long time. So a lot of people say, well, you're not a New Yorker. You're actually an Arizona girl. So originally I'm from New York. How old were you when you left New York? I was actually, I I was a um, preteen. I was what, 12, 13 years old. Okay. Okay. Do you still have family back in New York? I used to. I used to have my great grandmother just recently died about a year ago. She was 106. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yes. And spent most of her life in, in Westchester. So I hope I, I get a chance to live that long as well. Yeah. Yes. 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 Wow. That's amazing. Holy cow. One of our last podcasts was, I don't know if you know my, one of my partners, Dr. Leo Gordon. Do you know Dr. Gordon? Mm -mm, No. He's an he's an amazing guy, but the the topic of that podcast was was mentorship. We, that was kind of our. We don't usually have a topic. It's usually just free flowing and ridiculous, like like I am right now. Mm-hmm. But with him specifically, because to some degree he's a mentor of mine and and is a mentor figure. And so I what I wanted to ask is, did you either in college or med school have a mentor? Was there someone who kind of made you decide, hey, let me go into medicine? Where, where did that come from for you? 
Uh, no, I didn't really have a, a college mentor. Um, I kind of, you know, just growing up, I got really interested in, in blood, <laughs> blood and, and messy stuff. So I young age, I mean, age 11, I had a stepsister one time who fell off her bike and really hurt her, her elbow and bleeding all over the place and just thought that was the coolest thing ever. And, nice. uh, and then just kind of got into but plus my mom, I would have to say my mom was really really, you know, very influential into pushing me into medicine. It was kind of, you know, believed in my family that you, you either become a doctor or a lawyer and, and that's pretty much it. So right. she pushed Same with me. me. So, mm-hmm. Are we, mm-hmm. Maybe we're related. I, I don't maybe. Know, I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my mom, I would have to say my mother was really very influential in, in becoming, me becoming an MD. So what was your major in college? Biology. I was on the straight and narrow. It was this bio and then, you know, med school. So So you knew you were doing that. Did you take any time off or you went straight? I didn't take any time off. I didn't take any time off at all. I, there was a short period of time where I, where I thought, okay, well maybe I don't want to do medicine. Maybe I want to become a lawyer. So I thought about that for like a hot minute, but then no, I I changed my mind. I was pre- pre-med all the way, didn't take any time off, went straight into med school and then straight into residency. So, so you sound like every same. parent's dream right now. I mean, that's <laughs> very, very professional. Yeah, no, no gap years. No, no gap years. I probably should have, but I didn't. <laughs> I must tell you, that's one of my big regrets that I didn't take any kind of gap years or extra, an extra year here or there. What about you? Yeah, I kind of, same thing. I kind of, re- you know, regret it. I would, you know, it would have been nice to explore some other things instead yeah. of being so narrowly focused on, yeah. you know, the sciences and, and medicine. It would have been, you know, really nice. So now, you know, now that I'm a physician, now I can, you know, explore a little bit in terms of other things that I like, but it would have been good back in my 20s as well. Exactly. I, and I want to get into those things, but but the other thing I want to ask you, so to me, radiation oncology, I, I want to get back there, is really kind of science physics based, isn't it? Yeah, it's a lot of physics, a lot of radiobiology. Absolutely. So is that is that a requirement or is that a passion of yours? Like, like there's no way I could be a radiation oncologist because that stuff just hurts my brain a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, going into it, I didn't know it was going to be, you know, as much physics <laughs> as it was yeah. in radiobiology. But yeah, you got to learn the radiobiology of it. You have to learn the physics behind it. And then you got to learn the clinical side of it. So we were tested on all three. But was that, a, was that something you were already good at or, and gravitated towards that, that helped kind of make your decision to go into it? Or, and, and do you think most radiation oncologists are, or they kind of just find radiation oncology separate from it? Well, I wouldn't say I was naturally, you know, good at, at, at that subject matter. It was just something that, you know, I, I, I think for me, it was just the, the really the, the strong desire to work with cancer patients. But I think, you know, when you do become a radiation oncologist, you do, you kind of have to, you know, because you have to learn that material, you should, should like it and be interested in it. I mean, it is fascinating. Um, it's very fascinating, very involved. Um, and I think people who do go into it, they enjoy that aspect of it. And uh, especially the research side, especially when you're dealing with radiobiology, there's a lot of research. Um, and so, 
So yeah, people like it. And I think they like the technology behind it as well. You know, right. Are you, so, so one of the reasons we started this podcast is because I and Lauren are both big movie TV pop culture fans. Mm -hmm. So, so when I think for whatever reason, when I think of radiation oncologists, did you ever see the, the show, Lauren, I think you did. did Rosalind, did you ever see the show, The Nick? No, I didn't. Lauren, did you? Yes, I watched the first season. It's pretty, pretty horrifying scenes sometimes. So the, I recommend The Nick, and I don't know if we've ever discussed it. Maybe we have on the show, but it's about in New York City, the Knickerbocker Hotel, I think, uh, hotel, hospital, was the, it was the Knickerbocker Hospital, and it was the early 1900s where medicine and, and, um, was just coming up a little bit and surgery and techniques and sterile techniques were kind of just starting. But I remember in the show, they got an x-ray machine and the doctors and administrators were just having fun with it. And they were just taking pictures and, and they kept just because they could, they had no idea about radiation and they would just keep taking pictures and x-rays and x-rays of the hands and x-rays of the feet and x-rays of the da da da. They didn't, they didn't then go on to show any side effects from the radiation, but, but it kind of gave you that creepy, funny feeling about it. Um, and it, it's just an interesting moment. I, I don't know why I think about that. Um, I, I think it's worth watching. And I, I don't know where I'm going with that, so I'm going to quickly jump into Chernobyl. <laughs> cause I, cause did you see the show Chernobyl? Actually, I didn't see the show Chernobyl. I heard about it but I did not see it. Are you a big movie TV pop culture fan? I am. I, but you know what I gravitate towards? I gravitate towards comedy, things that make me laugh because right. my job is so serious and I deal with pr some pretty serious issues on a daily basis. I have to laugh when I get home and, and I'm relaxing. So yeah. I have a tendency to stay away from, you know, serious matters such as that. So I actually did not see it. And, and the truth is, I think if not for our podcast, I might not have watched Chernobyl. I, mm -hmm. You know, I, I watched Chernobyl as part of homework to discuss medicine a little bit and radiation and all of that. And so my daughter said to me, my 14-year-old daughter said to me, for some reason, we were talking about radiation for cancer. And she said to me, isn't it going to cause cancer? And, yes. I said, and I said, yes, but I'm going to actually put the pressure on Dr. Morell, who I'm going to talk to uh, for our podcast and say to her, tell me, so radiation causes cancer, but it treats cancer. Explain that to me. So it, it does cause cancer. It can cause cancer. So, you know, with radiation therapy, what I'm using is therapeutic, um, what we call therapeutic radiation, therapeutic doses where the do doses are divided, you know, uh, basically over many days or many weeks to allow the body, the normal tissue to repair um, from the radiation damage. But as I explained to all my patients, the radiation that we use, it impacts both the cancer cells as well as the normal cells. And so when the radiation gets into the body, um, basically it, what it's doing is that that ionizing radiation is damaging the DNA in the cells and the cells will react to that damage. So you have normal cells that will um, detect the damage because our cells have repair pathways and repair mechanisms and can repair the damage. Um, whereas cancer cells, 
they don't have those um, repair pathways, or if they do, they're faulty. And so the there's lethal damage that's done to the DNA, so breaking the DNA, basically double-stranded breaks, and that causes the cell to die. And so that's exactly what we want when we're treating cancer. We want those cells to die. We want the normal cells to live, and some do so after they repair the damage. However, there can be mutations that occur, and so radiation has been shown to cause cancer. It's a very, very low risk um, when we're talking about, you know, radiation oncology and how we deliver um, the radiation that we use. So, um, but for every patient, I always talk to them about a radiation-induced malignancy that, yes, you have a very, very um, slight chance that you're going to potentially develop a cancer from the radiation. But we know that the risk is quite low. And, you know, given the fact that we're treating a cancer at this time, then we know that the benefit of doing the radiation outweighs any risk of getting a problem from the radiation. But to answer your question, yes, it can cause cancer um, in patients and other individuals. But that's pretty much what I tell my patients. How often have you, have you actually seen a patient get a cancer that they that we could say, yeah, it was probably from the radiation. Three times in my career, so three times in. And in, and you're only um, 24, so you've just been practicing for like <laughs> right. a year, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> just uh -huh. turned 24. What were the what were the cancers? Two angiosarcomas, and uh, and this, the third one was just a, a sarcoma. Um, and so, in the radiation field, patients who had two patients had breast cancer, and um, the third patient had a previous history of pelvic radiation for cervical cancer. So, actual big tumors showed, like big soft tissue tumors showed up. The pelvic they, tissue. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Are those harder to treat, or are they just as just the same to treat or because they've been gotten radiation and from, are they even more evil or less evil or the same? Well, the, the angiosarcomas of the, in the breast patients, believe it or not, we actually treat that with radiation a lot of times. Wow. Yeah. Really? And, yes. And so, um, those can, but they can be very challenging to treat. And then the, you know, the pelvic sarcoma, that was also challenging. That can be challenging to treat. And, and that patient, again, got radiation um, therapy. Um, but when you're talking about someone who's had previous radiation um, to a body part, and then you're trying to re-irradiate, it can be very tricky because the normal tissue in the area really reaches a tolerance level and it can't really, you can't go beyond that. But the um, time well, factors happens, in. What happens if you go beyond it? Will the patient mutate and turn into like a monster? Um, they won't turn into a monster, but they can have some devastating consequences. Yes, you can cause um, some significant damage. You can cause, you know, strictures and significant fibrosis. You can, you can actually perforate tissue. Um, you can cause some very um, serious damage. So we're always um, paying attention to that when we're talking about even someone having an initial course of radiation, as well as someone who's maybe, you know, getting re-irradiated. So, so um, uh, oftentimes I'll have to send some of my patients to you for radiation. And mm -hmm. so, it, I, and I don't really, even though I did during my fellowship, a one month rotation on radiation oncology, which was really limited. Um, yeah. My rotation, that is. 
Um, when I tell patients to get them ready for the radiation, I say, here's my spiel. Tell me, tell me if it's a good spiel or not. Okay. Okay. I say to the patient, you basically, so for breast cancer, I say it's basically five days a week, Monday through Friday. Typically you show up for about 15 minutes. You lay down as if you're in a tanning salon and you get up and you go and it's the same time. And it basically lasts six weeks and you don't even know you're not even feeling anything. It's like, you're just laying at a tanning salon. Is that a good way to, am I doing a disservice or a service and kind of describing it? No, I think you're doing a good job. That's, that's yeah. pretty much what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So patients feel nothing. Generally, they don't feel a thing. It's painless when right. they're getting external beams. So if the, if the radiation is coming from out of the machine, they really don't feel a thing. And the one thing I know is before you guys do radiation, you often make some kind of mold. Uh, this part, I don't know. No matter what body part it is, you make some kind of mold of what it, whether it's their face or their breast or their arm, you make a mold. Mm -hmm. Yes, we do. Because radiation is so precise, we have to make sure that the patient does not move on the table when the beam is on. So we immobilize pretty much everywhere that we're going to treat. So if we're going to treat the brain or anything in the head area, we make a mask for their head and we actually kind of lock them down into the mask, but the mask, you know, they can see through and breathe through, but that allows pretty much zero movement of their head. And if it's like an arm or a leg or even the breast, we use a device generally called a backlock bag, which basically molds to the shape of their body part. Um, again, so to help them from not moving on the table. And and how long are they literally laying there? They are literally laying on the table for approximately 10 minutes, but the actual beam of radiation is not on that entire time. So it's on for about a minute, depending upon what you're treating. So it can be longer than a minute uh, or a minute and a half for sure. But for the most part, the, the beam is on for just that, you know, couple of minutes. And then um, the remaining time is spent taking our pictures that we need to take to make sure that they are in there, basically laying on the table in the exact same position that they were in when we plan the radiation. So when they went through a pre-planning process called a CT simulation. So every time the patient comes in, we want to make sure that, you know, things have, you know, they're not moving on the table and that, um, you know, they are right in the same position. So that's what the majority of the time on the table is spent doing. But the actual, the actual radiation beam typically is just a minute or two. These, these yeah. are things I don't even know. Uh -huh. Yeah, just a minute or two. For, so for instance, with um, advanced technology, when we're treating prostate cancer or breast cancer, it's about, uh, about a minute or two that the beam is actually on. If you're why doing something- why, like why isn't it just like a quick second? Why, why does it even need to be a minute or two? Well, you have to deliver when we're delivering the radiation, you're delivering a certain dose. And so that uh -huh. dose is coming out of the machine at a certain rate. And so that's why it takes that amount of time. Could the dose be given though in seconds? And if so, would it be toxic? Is that why it's not given in seconds and has to be given over a minute? 
It's given, it's, it's how the radiation is coming out of the machine. And so, yes, there are some, there is some technology now that's new where it's given much faster. So that's mm. that, yeah, that's actually coming into clinical practice where you're giving it very, very quickly. But for our standard radiation machines that are, are used right now, it's, you know, just that time is needed for that amount of radiation to come out of the machine. Mm-hmm. Have you had patients freak out and get claustrophobic? On, no. On yeah, good question. No, because t- typically an external beam radiation machine is open. So it's not even, it's not like an MRI. It's even more open than a CT scan. So right. us- usually the claustrophobic patients do quite well. So that's not a big issue for them. And what would you do with a patient with some kind of movement disorder? Like a Parkinson's patient or... Um, uh, w- with a Parkinson's patient, we would probably take some extra, do some extra things to immobilize them um, mm-hmm. as much as possible and um, help to relax them as much as possible. So there's, and then you're, there are other things that you can do. You can use straps and you can use, you know, other devices to, to kind of, you know, drugs and, and other devices on the machine that we can use to minimize movement. Yes. Is the process the same for children? Like you said, the process is a little bit different. If you're uh, a lot of times they will use anesthesia. They will actually put the child under if you're dealing with a very young patient. So because they don't have that ability to to remain still. So they use anesthesia. And these days, I remember when I first started out, the the difference. So I'll see the patients during their treatment. And it's I, I found it's amazing the the differences in terms of how less side effects we see from when I first started to, I, I used to see amazing skin, crazy burns all over patients' bodies from, you wouldn't say, you know, you're told the radiation's inside, but patients would show up with insane sunburns and stuff. Now I see that much less. Is that mm-hmm. just because I'm lucky or what's, what's, what's no, the story with that? The technology has improved. So it ke- it has improved over the years. It keeps improving. Um, we have a better understanding of, you know, how these side effects occur and what to do about them and how we plan the radiation. And so with our technology, it's just getting more and more sophisticated. So you're able to really kind of control that radiation dose and um, prevent um, problems like that. So usually I tell my patients, you know, you shouldn't be burned or fried or blistered. Um, You're going to see some inflammation. You're going to see some redness, but skin kind of oozing off, you know, that necrotic tissue, dead tissue from radiation, I mean, burning a hole in someone, that should not happen. But it, it, it definitely used to happen. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Did you used to see it a lot too when you started? Not in, uh, not in training. I didn't see it. I didn't see it that much in training, even, even, you know, 20 years ago when I went through training, I didn't see it too much, but I've heard the horrific stories. Um, Mm -hmm. even before that, you know, we used to treat with cobalt. Um, and that was a, that's a little bit different than what we treat with now. Um, and so I heard about all the, you know, the bad reactions, but it's, you, we definitely cause side effects. 
for sure. And um, but, you know, as radiation oncologists, we're supposed to be aware of what those side effects could potentially be and try to minimize them as much as possible with how we plan the radiation and how we manage the patient clinically. So you shouldn't have those complications. So why years ago, this is even before I was a kid, I, I don't know what, what decades this happened. Years and years ago, supposedly, Lauren, I don't know if you know this, acne was treated with radiation, right? Yeah. That's really scary. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? We used to treat acne and a couple of other, you know, benign things um, with radiation. And I think, again, that was um, about many, many, many years ago before we really had a full understanding of some of the, you know, long-term issues related with radiation. So we don't do that anymore. Um, you know what you the know. treatment was and how often it was? Was it no. just a one-shot thing? Yeah, no, I don't. That's one thing. I don't know how they treated the acne. Yeah. And I wonder the surgery I like to do the most of is thyroid. So a lot of patients who had radiation for acne, I see a decent number of those who now show up with thyroid cancers because the neck was in the field Mm -hmm. and caused somehow thyroid cancer. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So that's why I even know, know about it. Otherwise I probably wouldn't have known about it either. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question as the non-doctor in the group. So Dr. Cohen, like a cancer patient sees you and you decide they need radiation. Like how do you, how do you decide you have to decide between surgery, chemotherapy and radiation? Is it like based on the stage of cancer? And then do you just like let, Dr. Morell and get her opinion if she agrees? How does it work? I'll let Dr. Mor- I'll let Dr. Morell okay. answer that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, uh, usually radiation oncology, you know, Basically, for cancer treatment, it should be a multidisciplinary approach. So if you have someone who, a patient who's been diagnosed with cancer, the best type of cancer care would be where you have the surgeon, the medical oncologist, and the radiation oncologist all talking, preferably maybe in the same room, um, but you know, a lot of times you can't do that. But everybody who is potentially going to be same in the same room, doing, what, people are in the same room these days? <laughs> not now. Yeah. Not now. Yeah. Not with COVID, but... Um, but essentially where we're all talking about the patient so that everybody is involved in that patient's care. But um, what you see a lot of times, Lauren, is that you see patients who are diagnosed with cancer and and depending upon the type of cancer, as clinicians, we kind of know who should, you know, which type of cancer really is um, treated with surgery versus maybe a non-surgical approach where it's treated with chemotherapy and maybe radiation at the same time. And so what you'll see is that the patient will may see the surgeon first. That surgeon may be doing the biopsy or maybe they had the biopsy done maybe at a, for instance, with breast cancer, maybe they had the biopsy done at the mammography facility and then they get sent to the surgeon. Um, and then, you know, or the patient sees a medical oncologist first because a lot of times the medical oncologist is what we call the quarterback. Um, and then they will send the patient to, for instance, to me, to radiation oncology. So it's, it's kind of dependent upon, you know, the type of cancer um, that it is. Okay. But I, you agree, but Dr. To, Cohen? I agree. And to, just to, to add to what you said or maybe echo it, I, I think it's best when everybody gets to see the patient before treatment 
a radiation oncologist, a medical oncologist, and a surgical oncologist. I, I think that's that's best for the types of cancer that that might benefit from all three, because I think it helps kind of make the decision: Do we do all three? Do we do two out of three? Do we, and and what's the order? Because sometimes you do one before the other. Sometimes it's and it's not always a clear cut case. And and then there's, for example, like with breast cancer, sometimes a woman or a man is deciding to do a mastectomy or a lumpectomy. Mastectomy, remove the entire breast, or lumpectomy, save the breast. In order to save the breast, in order for that to be as good as removing the entire breast, you really have to add in the radiation. So I often like a patient, they may have indications that they would do well doing either, removing the breast or doing a lumpectomy and saving the breast. So I say to them, I often would prefer them to go, A, talk to a plastic surgeon before before surgery too. So that's an even fourth doctor to get into the mix. And then talk to Dr. Morell before treatment too, so they could kind of hear everything. And I could get Dr. Morell's opinion. Yeah, this patient would do well with it or wouldn't do well with it. And, and sometimes, you know, it, it helps the patient make the decision which way to go. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and having all of that information presented to the patient helps them make an informed decision because so many times, you know, over my career, I've had patients come to me, you know, later on, maybe after they had a recurrence or something like that. And they say, well, I never saw a radiation oncologist when I was first diagnosed. Um, so it's always good to have everybody involved to get on, you know, everybody's opinion on that particular case. Okay. And, and what, and one of the things about that is in a big city setting, usually you do get all of that. But in small community hospitals, unfortunately, and especially in, in the middle of nowhere, unfortunately, you rarely get that type of of care for patients. Don't you agree? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, yeah. I definitely agree. So, yeah. yeah. Dr. Morell, like during uh, the pandemic, have you just been like, seeing patients like via telehealth to like meet them initially to, okay. I was wondering. Yeah. Whereas before the pandemic, I really wasn't doing any telehealth. Now about 50% of my new patients, you know, I'm meeting them um, via telehealth. So it's definitely changed how, how we're practicing, which is a good thing. It's actually, it's a really good thing. And I think it's, it's, it's not going to change back. I think telehealth is here to stay and I think it's a good thing. Are you finding the volumes of radiation because of the pandemic is up, down, or the same of patients getting radiation? Um, a few months ago, it actually, um, you know, my volumes were pretty much where they've always been. But just, you know, recently, I think, yeah, the volume has gone down a little bit. Absolutely. The um, ORs, you would know this better than I would, but the ORs are closed, I think, to um, certain surgical procedures and um, patient, you know, some um, offices, doctor's offices are, are not seeing as many patients. So yeah, there's fewer patients. And I think, you know, people are afraid. They're just afraid to, to go out and even get medical care right now for, right. for certain things. So, mm-hmm. so you're finding patients who need it are putting it off. Have you found that? Yeah, they're putting it off. So for instance, with prostate cancer, prostate cancer generally is a slow growing cancer. And so men a lot of times have time to decide and, you know, and things like that. And some men who, who should have treatment are actually just putting it off right now and they're just pushing it back and, and not doing anything about it right now. Prostate cancer is one of those funny cancers that 
uh, has multiple potential treatments with all similar outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so one is surgery, one is medicine, one is radiation, oncology. Right. And I often, and it, it, some, I don't treat prostate cancer, but I'll sometimes have patients come to me and say, hey, doc, I have prostate cancer. What should I do? So one thing I often notice is, oddly enough, not oddly, but expectedly, that the radiation oncologist might favor radiation. The, the surgeon, the urologist might favor surgery, and the medical oncologist favors chemo. And I'll often tell the patient to get multiple opinions when it comes to that, or I'll often say, if the specialist recommends something out of their specialty, I'll often say, ah, that's probably what you should get. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Prostate cancer, there's a lot of options available. And for the most part, you know, a good majority of men have, they have those options available to them. Not everyone does, but, you know, that though, that. That is pretty much one of those types of cancer where you should see the surgeon, you should see the radiation oncologist, and, and sometimes you should see the, the medical oncologist as well. But it's mostly surgery um, or radiation therapy. And um, there's, you know, a, just a lot of options available. But sometimes the, you know, patients don't get to a radiation oncologist or they're fearful of going to a radiation oncologist. Um, they think that um, they're going to be radioactive. They think that, um, you know, they're, they're going to get a, a radiation-induced cancer. All, there's a lot of fear around radiation. So I, you know, I it, it makes me a little sad when I have a patient who doesn't want to come see me. So sometimes they're you know, they've been referred to me by the urologist to, to get the information about radiation for their prostate cancer, but they just refuse to come because of maybe a family member or a friend had a bad experience or something that they read or saw online. And so they absolutely refuse and, and they just decide to, you know, not even hear the information. Um, so. so one of the, just talking before we finish prostate cancer, so one of the things about treatment for prostate cancer, one of the fears from the side effects of the treatment is impotence. And so surgery, I think of the three, has the highest chance of impotence and and issues with erection. Where does radiation fit in, in terms of incidence of that? So the literature is, it varies. And so, you know, in terms of the the numbers, um, so I always quote my patients a range and we know that, you know, anywhere from 10% to, you know, 40, 40%, 50% of the men could potentially have erectile dysfunction from the radiation. And it's typically not seen as they go through the treatments. This is one of those side effects where they may not notice it until, you know, a year, year and a half after the radiation. So it's a long-term side effect. And um, so that's what we generally quote. But for the most part, men have a better chance of maintaining their erections um, with radiation compared to um, surgery. But it's a very, very real side effect. And, and the men who are you know, not experiencing erectile dysfunction prior to starting the radiation have a tendency to do a little bit better than those who are already using medications such as Viagra or Cialis. So I, I didn't realize the incidence that you quote is that high, 10 to 40%. I, I actually thought it was lower. 
No, it's, you know, like I said, it's a, our literature reports, you know, um, you know, various numbers. And so it has been, you know, quite, quite high in the past on some of our research. And so I always quote that range. I would say, you know, when I, for my practice and over the years, what I've seen is probably, you know, along the lines of 25%. um, Right. Of the men. And then, and then, Let's just touch upon, lately I've been seeing a lot of skin cancers, squamous cell cancers and basal cell cancers. Mm-hmm. And that's something also that could radiation can cause, but radiation can treat, correct? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yes, we can treat basal cells and we can treat squamous cell um, carcinomas. So we work sometimes with the dermatologist. Um, and uh, if there's an area of the body that maybe um, they can't get to easily or the cosmetic outcome is not going to be good, or if from depending upon the findings after they do surgery to try to remove it, sometimes the patient is um, treated with radiation therapy. So we treat both basal cells and squamous cells. What are you watching What currently? What, what, have, what are you planning on watching? And we're getting back into the pop culture thing. Oh, what do I, I mean, you know, I, you know what I'm watching? I'm watching old episodes of Scrubs, believe it or not. I, I was doing that too. We're watching the same thing. Yeah. So we um, pulled our Instagram followers and that was like their favorite medical show. And so mm-hmm. since it's available on Amazon Prime. I've just been watching that too. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm watching that and I just got into, this is not a comedy, but it's actually quite good. I'm watching Suits. Have you guys yeah. seen Suits? Oh. Yeah. I know about it. I I never saw it though. Lauren, you got to watch, start watching it. Very good show. The lead actor is just easy on the eyes. Yeah. That was on USA. Yeah. 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 But now it's on, uh, you can catch the, you know, all the episodes on uh, prime. What other show? Oh, and then the most recent that I've just gotten into, which also not comedy, but quite entertaining, Bridgerton. <laughs> yeah. right. I was going to say, I know you watch Bridgerton. I watch Bridgerton. Every person I, every female I know has watched Bridgerton. Yeah. <laughs> that, yes. That's a show about just characters who are all very easy on the eyes, I heard. They, yeah. yeah. There's some good leads. Yeah, the male yeah. in particular, yes. Yeah. Both, I, I heard both. It's kind of like a steamy, soapy show, but but good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, right. yes, I right. agree. Lauren, any other questions, comments, thoughts? Just on on radiation therapy, is there anything like, uh, we always talk about diet, exercise, different things to do. Is there any like thing that you tell your patients like vitamins, anything they can do to like improve any like side effects or anything, or is it just what it is? Well, we got, yeah, I do tell my patients, for instance, um, a good diet, good plant-based diet, I think is, is actually quite good during radiation therapy. We try to, for certain disease sites, we want to make sure that they're not eating spicy food or acidic foods and, you know, trying to limit the, the foods that cause gas. Um, so good plant-based diet, or maybe, you know, with a little bit of, of meat um, here and there. Plenty of water is important, um, very important for any time that you're going through radiation um, therapy. And um, essentially taking care of the skin is very important for radiation. And we have our creams that we, you know, make suggestions to in terms of the patients to use. Um, what are the go-to creams? What are the go-to creams? Go-to creams, aloe vera, aquaphor, meoderm, um, calendula is another one. 
Those are the okay. go-to. And then why do you say, are you yourself plant-based? I am not my, I, I pretty much, yes, I'm plant-based. I have a little bit of meat from here, you know, from time to time. Um, but, uh, I try to eat a good, you know, healthy diet, lots of vegetables, lots of fruit and a lot of water. So that's what I, I do. The reason I, I got excited cause I, lately I've been religiously plant-based, but I've always strived at least for the last five years to be plant-based. So, yeah. so I was excited to hear you say that. Yeah, I, I, that's the way that I need to go. Um, I'm, I'm looking at becoming, you know, a vegetarian. I don't think I can go all the way vegan, but <laughs> certainly a vegetarian and, and get rid of, you know, the meat that I am eating. So, yeah. and, and the vitamins are important too, Lauren. Um, so the, uh, we try and tell our patients though, you know, not to take um, excessive amounts of vitamin A, C, or E as they go through the radiation, but, you know. Why? Um, the, why? Because uh, A, C, and E can um, scavenge those free radicals that are being produced by the radiation. And it's those free radicals that are getting into the cell and causing the, the damage to the DNA. So we want those around um, when they're getting the radiation. It sounds like a rock band, the free radicals. Yeah, it does. <laughs> That's a good name or, for a rock band. Actually <laughs> scavenge the free radicals. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Exactly. So, so yes. you really have to avoid A, C, and E. Interesting. Yep. That's what we generally tell our patients. That, that's only for patients who are taking, you know, maybe above and beyond what's in a multivitamin. So, um, and then they can, you know, resume that when the, when the radiation is done. And should a patient be careful about going out in the sun uh, when they're getting radiation? If they're, if the part of the body that's being treated is kind of, you know, if it's an external organ, for instance, you know, the breast, you know, that, the, that skin is going to be sensitive, you know, from the radiation itself. So you don't want to, you know, add any um, additional um, inflammation from, you know, laying out in the sun. So, yeah, but generally can patients go out in the sun when they're getting radiation treatments? Absolutely. Okay. I have, well, I have two more questions. They're kind of the same. One is everybody's always scared about, oh, you ordered a CAT scan. I had a CAT scan a year ago. I'm going to get cancer. So that's question number one. Do, do people really need to worry about going to get scans? Because everybody's, oh, I'm an x-ray. I'm going to get cancer. So how real is that risk? What, what, what should you tell? And then what about, air, and what do you compare it to? Is airline travel bad? Is sitting in front of a microwave bad? Debunk some myths for me. That's, that's maybe our parting, my parting questions for you. Okay, so there's radiation all around us, right? There's radiation in the ground, there's radiation in buildings, there's radiation in our food. So we can't escape, um, you know. Oh, and let me add, and I'm, and I'm cutting you off, and I'm adding, I heard that people are even worried about their phones. Like, don't put your phone near your head for radiation. Okay, so that's, yeah. add to that one. Okay, so answer yeah. all my all that yes. yes. So you can get um, uh, radiation dose from CAT scans, but you'd have to get a lot of CAT scans before those scans were to cause you any type of problem. The um, and you do get radiation from flying. Um, you know, in planes at 35,000 feet, you're getting, you're getting radiation. Um, and so, but again, you would have to be making. 
hundreds of flights. I mean, a lot of flights back and forth, always in the air before you had any significant problems from um, the radiation dose that you get from flying. And so there's, like I said, there's radiation all around us. There's actually an interesting equivalent. So bananas, believe it or not, bananas have radiation in them. Um, So the potassium 40. And so there is something called a banana equivalent dose. And so this banana equivalent dose is a good way of kind of talking, you know, about these different things in terms of how much it would, how many bananas would it take for you to eat that would be (laughs) equivalent to, you know, getting the radiation, the same radiation dose from these different things. And so there's, um, you would have to eat a lot of bananas from, from, those, from those different things. But we, we're exposed to radiation all the time. Um, and, um, but it's, it's just, it's, you just have to be, you know, be careful. But again, getting, you would have to get a lot of scans before you had any problems. So, so getting, so the, you always hear in the emergency room or whatever, oh, I have a 21-year-old with uh, appendicitis. Oh, I'm worried. I don't want to do a CAT scan because I'm worried about the radiation. Mm-hmm. That's hooey. Isn't that hooey? It's, it's not hooey, but it's certainly not something that somebody needs to be overly concerned about. You, again, right. th- that one scan, two scans, three scans, that's not going to cause any type of problems. That's not a significant amount of radiation at all. The amount of radiation that I deliver to treat cancer, that's a significant amount of radiation. But there are radiation right. that you get from these CAT scans and uh, no. What about telephones, cell phones? What, what, what do you tell people who say, oh, I'm worried I'm going to get brain cancer? Um, again, I think that you just, uh, how many bananas, how many bananas do I have? (laughs) I don't know how many bananas you would have to eat in terms of the, in terms of the cell phone. Is it real? It's real. Do I do things like, you know, maybe not have the phone near my head all night long? You know, I kind of keep it away from my head, but again, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not overly concerned about it, um, at all. So do you know of the literature? Have we seen an increase in brain cancer in, in because of self over the years? That's or a good question. Or people who good. keep their phone in their pocket and an increase in, in testicular or ovarian cancer? I have not seen that. I have not right. seen that. Mm-mm. Right. No. Nope. All myths. We're, we're debunking myths. We are debunking myths, yes. Or we're eating a lot of bananas. <laughs> or we're eating lots and lots and lots of bananas. 400, 4,000, 40,000 bananas, yes. Wow. wow. Yes. Rosalind, this was amazing. I loved having you on here. Thank you for having me on the show. It was nice to meet you, Lauren. Nice chatting nice. with you. Um, yes, I learned a lot. Thank you very much, Dr. Morrell. Thank you so much. Thanks Thank for you. joining us. Really appreciate All right. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Gross Anatomy. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can check out more episodes on the evolving sights, smells, and sounds of medicine. Gross Anatomy is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.